Hey, this is Joe Caminetti Jr. Welcome to the BC Podcast. We hope it inspires you and helps you in your journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect. But instead, they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being, but in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right, this is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. 
But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power, and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. Well, I want to welcome you back to our series, The Way, today talking about the way of the exile. I want to welcome you if you're joining us in Boardman or TCI or our church community online, or of course here at Warren. My name's Ryan. I get to serve as our youth pastor here. And um, today I'm excited to dive into this concept of living as exiles. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter writes this letter to these first century Christians who are scattered throughout modern day Turkey, possibly driven from their homes in Jerusalem, all over the ancient world, or potentially just people who found out about Jesus and started following him. But he addresses them in a very unique way. He doesn't just call them elect. He doesn't just call them God's people. He calls them exiles. And we wonder, is that just because they're not living in their home country? And yet, at the end of the letter, he helps us realize why this is so much bigger than that. At 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he says, Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Peter says that, yes, you in, in these different regions in modern-day Turkey, you guys are in exile, but then he says, even myself here in Rome, I'm in Babylon too. And he began to paint this picture that followers of the way of Jesus were living as exiles, that no matter what country they lived in, that they were a part of something much bigger and yet distinct from the world around them. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says. You are not like that. You are a chosen people, a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, and now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you received God's mercy. We have a unique calling that is not an individual calling. You are all called individually, but we're all called corporately together to be the people of God, which in and of itself is a holy nation which means that we are a part of the nation of God and therefore we live in Babylon. 
And if you look at Babylon all throughout scripture from Genesis 11, where the very first time we see that phrase in scripture, all the way to Revelation, the final book in the Bible, all you see whenever Babylon is represented are human institutions that have sought to eradicate God and have sought to usurp his throne and his rule over creation. And therefore you see corruption, you see immorality, you see greed and power abused, and you see these beasts created that are in direct opposition to God. And yet as the people of God, we discover that we are exiles in modern day Babylon. And I know this is confusing for a lot of us because you may have just assumed we live in America, so this is a Christian nation. And maybe the truth is we have been a nation with a lot of Christians, but we have always been in Babylon. Because until the day Jesus is ruling and reigning over a nation, his holy nation, his royal priesthood, all of us are living as foreigners in the land of our birth. All of us are exiles. And we must discover how to live as exiles because if we don't, we will fail. We will never receive what God has for us. I was thinking about my grandfather. My grandfather served in the British military and he served in a specific part of the military called the Irish Guard. They recruited out of Northern Ireland. And these are the guys that they have a picture of. They're the guys that would stand really still and they can't move. And they have the big fluffy hats. And uh, I don't think they describe themselves that way. But uh, this, is, this is what my grandfather did. He, he was a part of this. He was a, this particular unit. They would actually guard the royal family. So he was there on the coronation day of Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, he was there guarding, you know, London Tower, standing perfectly still while little kids come up to you and try and distract you. This is my grandfather. And, and in their training for the Irish guards, they did this thing where they went to the Rhine River, which is one of the largest rivers in Western Europe. And they have a picture of it as well. And this river pretty massive. And one of their training exercises was that they were required to swim across this river twice. The first time just in their skivvies and the second time with their full pack and gear. And as you can imagine, it's a pretty big river, therefore a decently forceful river. And we were just shocked. Like you guys had to swim across this. Did anyone drown first? And apparently no one that he knew did. And we said, how did you swim across this river? It's such a powerful, forceful thing. And he taught us that there was something that you had to do in the sense in how you worked with the river. In some ways, you had to swim across the current of the river. You had to combat the, the current. But in other ways, you had to allow the current to work with you to help you get to where you wanted to go. So what they would do is they would swim across, but they would allow themselves to swim across and go downstream at the same time. And I think this is such a beautiful picture of the world we live in right now as exiles. That we are living in a cultural moment where we are in a current. And there is such a powerful human ideology and institutions that would seek to, to move us away from the things of God. And I will just say this, if you don't feel any tension between you and the world around you as a Christian, you might be pretty far downstream. It might mean that you've been carried away and you don't even realize that you're in a current. But you may be the other person who is fighting so hard and maybe all you're doing is just fighting upstream instead of allowing yourself to partner with the river where you can. This is the way of the exile. 
that we learn to partner and navigate this tension of living in a powerful current that is not from God. And I will say this, if you're one of those people who's downstream, that probably means that you don't think any differently from many of your friends about morality or money or uh, for many of us, it's if we agree with everything of our favorite news outlet, we are probably downstream. It means we're probably not thinking through kingdom values. And this is where we begin to understand the way of the exile. Question that arises, how do we live as exiles? How do we shape ourselves with the value system of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of this world? And I want to look at a story from Jesus' life that they mentioned in the video, but I think is a really powerful example. Matthew chapter 22, if you're following along with your Bible or your Bible app, says this, then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know you're honest and we know you teach the way of God truthfully. You're impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And if you've ever played the game Loaded Questions, this is a loaded question. They are trying to intentionally disrupt Jesus because Jesus has built this following of people who think he's the Jewish Messiah. And we think about Messiah and we hear that term and we think, oh, go to heaven and you know, experience salvation. They thought about that term as a military leader who was going to overthrow the Roman government. And so when they asked Jesus, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They think if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to lose his following because how could you bow your knee to Caesar? How could you give ground to Caesar? But they also know if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, rebel against Caesar, Jesus will be thrown in prison. He'll be executed. So for them, their goal is to trap Jesus where he can't win. It's a lose-lose. But Jesus turns lose-lose situations into win-win situations. Jesus is a Jedi. They didn't know that yet. Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. Jesus takes this coin, we have a picture of it, a denarius. And on this coin, he says, whose image is reflected here? And it's Caesar. And Jesus says, look, give to Caesar what is in his domain. He can ask for your money. He can ask for your submission. But he said, never give Caesar what does not belong to Caesar. And whose image is God's image on? It's on you, and you, and you, and you. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, give to Caesar something that is of this world, but when it comes to what you owe God, you owe him yourself, because his image is on you. And he creates this new pathway for us to live as exiles, where we submit most fully to him, as the king of the world, not just of our lives, but of all creation. And yet because of our submission to Jesus, we actually learn to submit to human institutions where God has deemed it acceptable. 
See, the way of the exile is this constant tension between submission and subversion. And it's, it's puzzling at times because you look at things like Romans chapter 13, where Paul writes in great detail and he says, I want you to honor the king of Rome. I want you to submit to the government because it has been instituted by God. And so therefore, if you rebel against government, you're rebelling against God. And we see, okay, so here's that thing that God has done in Romans 13. But then in Revelation 13, you read about the same Rome is embodied as a beast that has been empowered by Satan that is warring against human beings. And you say, how do I reconcile Romans 13 with Revelation 13? And Jesus gives us wisdom that it is when we submit when possible and we subvert when necessary. This is the way of the exile. We submit when possible because we recognize that every authority has actually been given that authority by God. But when those authorities choose to use their authority in a way that dishonors or actually uh, stops us from honoring God, then we must say, no matter what it costs me, I must subvert that way. And I must choose to honor God. We submit when possible and we subvert when necessary. And the question that then arises is, what does Christian subversion look like? If we are supposed to be a group of people that are elect of God and yet also exiled, how do we navigate the tension? How do we submit? How do we subvert? And once again, I think it's so important to go back to the teachings of Jesus because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in many of his teachings, he started to craft the type of person who would follow him. And he lays out these things that are so much more than rules. They're actually trying to build for us an image of who his followers will be. And the type of follower that Jesus builds will be the type of person who when faced with the insult of a backhanded slap will have such a strength on the inside of them that instead of responding in kind, they can respond with kindness. So they have such an internal strength that when they are slapped on the cheek, they can actually turn the other one. Not out of weakness or passivity, but out of the strength of knowing that God is my justice. And when a Roman officer would come and say, you got to carry my gear a mile, not because they are humiliated, but because they have humbled themselves before God, the person who is a follower of the way, they would have such confidence in who God is that he will vindicate them, that they will actually not just carry it one mile, but they'll carry it two miles. So how do we think about Christian subversion? It is not through the raising of a fist. It is through the turning of a cheek. Christian subversion is built on love and humility, not rebellious vengeance. And this should shock us a little bit because it says that we can live in the world where so many things are opposed to God and yet the way that we defeat them is not through battle of flesh and blood, but it is actually through a much stronger weapon. This is what Jesus did. Look at Colossians chapter two, verse 14. Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross in this way, in this way. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. How did Jesus conquer his enemies? Through the cross. How did Jesus put to shame those who opposed him? 
by humbling himself to death in the most humiliating fashion. The way we subvert in the culture around us is not through bloodshed, it is not through force, it is through the strength of being able to serve those who would persecute you. It reminds me of the proverb from Solomon that says, if you show kindness to an enemy, it's like pouring hot coals upon his head. Jesus taught us a way of subversion that was not based on vengeance and rebellion, but it was based on love and humility. And we see this throughout moments in history. Dr. King, right? He, he had this gospel-centric message that was formed from the gospel. And yet his practice of it led him to peaceful protest. We see this in Nazi Germany with all kinds of pastors who had to stand against oppressive regimes that were doing ungodly things and yet they knew it would cost them. Their submission, their subversion, and it's all through not raising a fist but turning a cheek. This is the way of the exile. And so I wanna just take in our final few moments, I wanna just look at a few qualities of how to live in this tension, of how to submit and subvert. And I wanna use the case study of comparing the book of Daniel, the story of Daniel, and the, the letter written by Peter in 1 Peter. And I wanna just encourage you, if, if you are looking for something to speak to the cultural moment we are in right now, you do not need a self-help book. Go pick up the book of Daniel. That book will show you how to navigate the world you're in better than almost any other book. So I'd encourage you to read it this week. But the first quality we see of exiles, and to me is the foundational quality, and it's the, it's the quality of hope. Daniel and his friends were ripped from their homeland. They're living in a place. They know it's their fault. They know it's not God's best for them, but it was because of their people's rebellion. They're in the midst of all this. How could they possibly stay faithful to God for the decades that they were there? Daniel was there for most of his adult life. He was an old man in Babylon by the time his story was over. How did he maintain fidelity and faithfulness to God in the midst of all of it? Hope. He had hope that this was not the end of the story. There's this moment where Daniel has this dream and it's a dream where he sees these four beasts and they're terrifying beasts. And this is what human institutions become when they're godless. They're, they're terrifying. Whether it's governments or ideologies or whatever ways of thinking about the world, they become terrifying. And, and Daniel actually says, I'm terrified. And I wonder if you felt that way before. You look at the world around you and the godlessness and you think, I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I'm scared for my kids. I'm scared for my grandkids. I'm scared. This is what Daniel's experiencing. And look what it says in Daniel chapter seven. It says, I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen and my visions terrified me. So I approached one of the, those standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. And he explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, everybody say, in the end. In the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. There's a lot of turmoil worldwide. There's a lot going on. But in the end, 
we have a hope that God's kingdom will rule and reign. And just so you know, the way Jesus rules and reigns, he wrongs, he rights all of the wrongs. He makes just that which has been unjust. All of the injustices of this world, he will make them right. All suffering will be put to death and death itself will be put to death. There will be no more crying, no more tears. He will be our God and we will be his people. We won't need the sun because his light will emanate throughout the whole city. This is the way that God will come and rule. And by the way, did you catch that? You're gonna rule and reign with him. And maybe some of us need to stop surviving through life and start viewing it as training for eternity. Yeah. <laughs> that God is actually trying to train you. When you read your Bible, it's not so you can cross something off the list. He's trying to train you for your, your permanent job, Amen. which is to rule and reign. But this is the hope. This is the hope we have. And it gives Daniel hope. Look at what Peter says. He says, uh, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with a great expectation that we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure, undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. You might have to go through some things here, but because you have a hope in something that is beyond today, beyond what you see, you know that you will make it through. You know that God will bring salvation to you. This is the hope you have to live with. If you lose hope, I don't know how much longer you got. But guess what? God is good at giving hope to the hopeless. That's who he is. So we live with hope. The next thing we have to be is we have to be, if we're going to be exiles, we have to be holy. In the story, Daniel chapter one, we actually read that Daniel and all his friends, noble elite people are actually not only taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, but they're actually forced into his service. So they go into this training and assimilation program where they're required to wear Babylonian fashion. They're required to learn Babylonian language and literature. They're required to change their names into Babylonian names. And they're fine. Daniel and all of his friends, they can do all of it. But then there comes a moment where they just can't go any further. They just can't go downstream anymore. They can't allow themselves to keep going. And that's when they say, we want want you to eat food from the king's kitchen where it has wine and it has these different uh, components of food that they weren't allowed to eat as Jewish men to be faithful to God. And so in this moment, Daniel says to them, we cannot eat that food. You can change our names. You can change our clothes. You can change our literature and our understanding. You can teach us all of it, but we will not be unfaithful to our God. And the, the royal attendant looks at them and says, well, if you guys don't eat this stuff, you, I might lose my life because the king doesn't want to see you malnourished. And so here's what Daniel says. He's so brilliant. He says, let me give you a challenge. He says, I want you for the next 10 days to allow us to eat the foods that will allow us to stay faithful to God. And then 10 days from now, you judge us and you figure out which has been better. And by the way, I wish I would have learned this when I was a younger man because I remember being in a sales job and thank God I'm not in sales because I was a terrible salesman. I liked making friends with people. I just didn't like asking them for money. But I remember this pressure that I experienced as a salesperson, and maybe in your company it's different, but I remember this pressure that we were kind of supposed to tell the truth, but kind of, you know, not the whole truth. 
kind of cut some corners ethically. I worked at a gym, you know, gyms are notorious for this, you know, and, and just do all this stuff. And I wish I would have in those moments thought about what Daniel did here, which is say, give me a chance to show you that, that a life of honoring God can actually lead you to greater success. And here's what happened. In Daniel's story, 10 days go by, they're eating only vegetables and water, Daniel and his friends. And 10 days go by and the attendant comes back and he says, wow, you guys look great. Whole food plant base is really working out for you, you know? In fact, it, they are so much better looking than all the other people that they have all the other trainees commit to this diet. And that's when you know they got angry because they were forced to go, no meat. But this is what happens. They stood their ground where they needed to and they were able to submit when they were po- where it was possible. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy, for the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He'll judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. Holiness is not just a holier than thou thing where you're just so pure. It's purity is in, contained in holiness. Holiness means set apart. It means that you are distinct, you are different. And so what sets us apart? Our obedience to God. So this is where it gets a little bit tricky because there are going to be times when you read your Bible and you think that's not a very popular opinion. That's not gonna win me any favor with the world around me to hold to that view. But this is where we must hold. We must stay obedient to Jesus even when it costs us everything. Why? Because our allegiance is to him. So we give to Caesar what we can give to Caesar, but we give to God what we can give to God. And what we can give to God is our obedience. So we see hope, we see holiness. Here's the next one. This is a fun one. Exiles are helpful. See, if you're one of those people that's swimming upstream and all you're doing is combating, you're probably not valuing the people and the things that are around you in the world. See, there's this moment where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Nebuchadnezzar's the king and Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream. And after he wakes up from his bad dream, he says to all of his royal magicians and enchanters, and he says, I want someone to tell me my dream, not just what it means. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then what it means. And by the way, if you don't do it, you all die. This is the beast, right? This is when a guy wakes up in a bad mood, some heads can roll. This is the the corruption, right? And so they're in this system and, and they're all ready to die because who could tell someone their dream that they haven't heard? But then Daniel hears about it and he says to his friends, hey, let's fast and pray. Let's pray that God would reveal us this. And actually God gives it to him. He gives him the, the dream and he gives him the interpretation. And so Daniel approaches the king and here's what he says. I think it's so profound. He says, King, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and your visions as you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. Hone in on this right here. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. There are desires on the inside of people 
for love, for freedom, for morality, for justice. And those desires have been put there by God. They are God-inspired desires. But because we live in Babylon, sometimes how we act out upon those desires or how we problem-solve those desires or solutions that we come up with those desires are warped, corrupt, immoral. And one of the most valuable things a person of the way can do is to be present in those moments to reveal the secrets that are on someone's heart and help them understand how God has a solution for those desires. God had the answers. He wanted the king to know what was on his heart. You have the ability to see the desires in the world around you and redirect them to the place of ultimate fulfillment. If they're searching for love, you have the source of true love. If they're searching for justice, you have the source of true justice. If they're searching for the way to make things right, you have the source of righteousness. This is why we can be helpful. Look at what Jeremiah 29, 4 says. It says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled from Babylon, from Jerusalem. Build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry, have children, find spouses for them so you may have many grandchildren. And all the grandparents said, amen. Multiply, do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you as an exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. We don't pray and just consign people to hell in a handbasket. We say, no, how can I be salt and light in the world around me? And I love it. Think about how they're saying to do this. They're saying, start businesses. Have families. Seek the prosperity of your employer. Right? These are all really practical ways to love your city. And yet when you do them, do them as hopeful and holy people. Do them as people. Start a business, but make sure that in your heart of hearts, you care about the kingdom first. Build your family, but do it as a way to be a light to the world. This is, this is how we help. We, we actually seek the welfare of the world around us, as corrupt as it is. And yet, here's what's cool. When Daniel did this for Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar ended up, after many difficult moments, humbling moments, God-dishonoring moments, ended up becoming a God-fearing man. Look what Peter says. I love this. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he's appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that you live honorable lives so that those, it can silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, Yet you are God's slave. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. What a beautiful summary of how we should live. Fear God, respect the king. And you know what I love about this too? He says, some of you are getting persecuted because you're knuckleheads. They're not persecuting because you're a Christian. They're persecuting because you're mean to people. Stop it. Don't be mean. But then there are those times where you will be persecuted because you just say yes when Jesus has asked you to say yes. And in those moments, it actually leads me to our final point, which is that exiles hold fast in persecution. There must be something on the inside of us that says, even if it costs me everything, I will stay faithful. I will stay faithful. This is the famous story of Daniel 
uh, from Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you've ever watched VeggieTales, this is the big bunny one, okay? And there's this moment where Nebuchadnezzar erects this image probably of himself, but it represents Babylon, their ideology, their power, their gods. And he says, I want everyone when the music plays to bow to this idol. And so when the music plays, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as much as they've been willing to wear the clothes and they've been willing to learn the language and they've been willing to build and plant and prosper there, they cannot worship this idol. And it puts them before King Nebuchadnezzar, who's furious. He says, how dare you defy me? What God do you think can save you? And here's their response. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we wanna make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Is that not the most polite rebellion you've ever seen in your entire life? Your majesty, we appreciate your rule. We cannot bow. We have to hold fast. And guess what? Most of us, we've kind of whitewashed the Christian journey as, okay, then God means you don't, once you do that, then he, they get saved, right? No, they get thrown into a fiery pit. And then Daniel does this a few chapters later. And guess what? He gets thrown into a lion's den. So it seems like it didn't work, right? Like they didn't get delivered. But if you've seen the veggie tales, you know <laughs> that there was another in the fire. Amen. And you know, that he might have been thrown to the lion's den, but the lion's mouths were shut. Amen. See, we hold fast in persecution knowing that it may cost us everything, but we also do it with the confidence that God will be our salvation, whether in this life or in the life to come. And I just wanna say this, we've been blessed to live in a country that has shared at least a lot of Christian values. I'm not saying they shares everything. And in fact, if you think they all share, like our past shares Christian values, I think you're seriously missing understanding every aspect of the kingdom of God. But I will say this, we've been blessed to live in a country that has shared a lot of them. And that's a luxury. Because we have brothers and sisters in Christ in China, in India, in the Middle East, all over the world who right now, they don't have that luxury. And so if that ever happens in North America, if it ever comes to a point where we must stand fast at the sake of our lives, we hold fast. Amen. We hold fast. Amen. We don't bow to the beat of culture. Amen. But we hold fast. Amen. This is the way of the exile. We submit where possible. We subvert when necessary. And I want to finish with Peter's instructions. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for those trials. Make your partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of his glory, of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying to other people's affairs. It is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. I'm not going to lie. When I was thinking about that moment, I didn't think everybody would start cheering for the suffering part, but that's the beauty of it. 
is that you can be like Paul who's in a, in a dungeon. He's in a <laughs> dungeon. He's in a jail cell and he's, he's exactly where he probably doesn't want to be. And yet he feels such joy knowing that he gets to partner in the suffering of Christ. Like there's no higher calling than to say, I'm with Jesus no matter what. And guess what? I love this. Jesus promised that if you are willing to stand for me on this earth, I will stand for you when you stand before my father. So let's be faithful. Let's live as the way. Let's, let's live the life of exiles. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm asking for a grace and a strength for your church to live faithfully to you in the midst of their exile in Babylon. And my prayer is that you would give us wisdom in how to navigate these tensions of submission and subversion. Show us how to swim across the river in a way that ultimately gets us to the promised land. And here's what I ultimately pray for every person in this room, every person watching at TCI, every person in board. I'm praying infuse us with hope. The hope that someday you will, in the end, make right every wrong. Wipe every tear from our eyes and establish the world the way it was supposed to be. The way that all creation longs for. Help us to be a part of that project here and now. As we stay in this attitude of prayer, I want to invite you to follow Jesus. Whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus, this applies to you, but especially if you're someone that says, you know what? I've never committed to following the way of Jesus and I'm ready to give him my life. You know, as you can tell, it's not always easy. Jesus actually has quite a demand that he places on all of his followers, which is paraphrasing, give me your life, all of it. The uncomfortable parts, the parts you like, the parts you wanna be in control of, give it all to me, give me your life. But he promises in return that if you give him your life, he'll give you true life. And when you think about it, you realize that giving him everything you got isn't that much compared to what you're getting in return. So today, if you say, I wanna become a follower of Jesus, I wanna make him the king of my life, then we're gonna pray a simple prayer. It's an act of faith to God that basically gives him our allegiance in the midst of Babylon. You say, this is me. I want you to pray it from your heart. The whole church is gonna help you pray but I want you to know that Jesus said, all who call upon my name will be saved. So church, would you help me praise? So no one prays alone. Say this, say, Jesus, I need you. I know I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Right now, I ask for forgiveness and I turn from my sin to you. Jesus, you are king. You are God. You died for my sins. You rose to life again so I could have life with you. You're the Lord of my life. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There are a couple things I'd love for you to do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. That helps us spread the word and impact more people. You can also help us see others connected to God by investing today at believers.cc give. And if you want updates on all things Believers Church, check out believers.cc or follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram or search Believers the Connecting Place on Facebook. 
The best way to connect with BC is live and in person at one of our weekend worship experiences. We have locations in Boardman and Warren, and you can get the service times and plan your visit at believers.cc. Thanks for tuning in to the BC Podcast. Thank you.